When people suggest the year that Jesus dies, you usually get two options that people will advocate for. 30 AD or 33 AD. And the reason these two options are the ones on the table is because a series of historical things must come together at the same time, leaving only two possible dates for the death of Jesus. You're looking for a year in which Tiberius was the emperor, during which Pilate was the governor, and a time in which the Passover fell on a Friday, and during the years of Pilate's governorship, with Tiberius being emperor and Passover falling on a Friday, you're left with those two dates. 30 AD or 33 AD. And you might be wondering, well, is there a reason to actually suggest one over the other, to actually prefer one? And I think there is. Luke's gospel helps us in chapter 3. Luke 3, one tells us John the Baptist began his preaching, baptizing ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. So if we do a little math, we can figure out if Tiberius Caesar began reigning at a particular date, the 15th year from that is when John the Baptist begins his ministry. And then several years after that is the ministry of Jesus, a multi-year earthly ministry before the cross. Well, here's what we can know from Roman records that Tiberius began reigning in 14 AD, which puts John the Baptist's baptizing and preaching ministry in the window of time from 29 to 30 AD, likely then the multi-year ministry of Jesus taking you to 33 AD. Now, if you tracked with me through all of that, okay, we've got several historical figures and names and dates. I'm suggesting that 33 AD is the likely time. And if that arg- these arguments hold up, and I think they do, then the Passover Friday that Jesus died on was April the 3rd, 33 AD. Friends, today is April the 3rd, 2022. And if Jesus died on 33 AD, then he died 1,989 years ago today. And we're coming to words on a cross spoken among criminals in Jesus that are 1,989 years old today. We're going to get an insight into a conversation, some exchanges, some scorning, and some faith and hope that are nearly 2,000 years old. But if April the 3rd, 33 AD is right, then these words were spoken then. And we're arriving at a passage to look at these exchanged words, a passage of verses beloved by Bible readers. These are only found in Luke's gospel. And one of the the fun adventures of preaching through Luke's gospel has been to arrive at all the different stories and miracles and teachings that only Luke records. This is one of these. So I've looked forward to this for a long time. Thinking about the passage where the thief says, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus responds, today you will be with me in paradise. In his commentary on Luke, J.C. Ryle says, these verses should be printed in letters of gold. He says they've probably been the salvation of countless thousands of souls. Multitudes will thank God for all eternity that the Bible contains the story of the penitent thief. I think Ryle is right. The penitent thief. The word penitent 
means repentant. When we talk about a penitent criminal on the cross, we're talking about a repentant criminal who recognized his own sin, his need for grace, and a turning to Christ in faith. We're thinking about penance or penitence on display with this criminal. The penitent thief is the repentant thief. Thief, this is a traditional way of thinking about it. The two thieves on either side of Jesus. Now I'm going to use this word, thief or criminal, interchangeably. Probably he was being crucified for more than just stealing. Remember, there was a middle cross on which Barabbas was supposed to have been hanged. Jesus is there instead. Now, what was Barabbas to be crucified for? Well, he was in prison with several others, including these on the right and the left. And Barabbas had committed murder in the city and begun an insurrection at some earlier date. It had failed. And these criminals were likely in cahoots with Barabbas. And so for whatever thievery they may have committed, likely more than that is what led them all to being crucified by the Roman Empire. You weren't just crucified because you stole a loaf of bread in the market, okay? You were crucified as a public display of shaming those committing treason against the empire. So thieves on the cross, well, yeah, they likely had committed thievery to some degree. Far more than that. And we just need to be aware of that, okay? Sometimes a traditional way of talking about these as thieves on the cross can uh, end up diluting in our mind what these were likely guilty of along with Barabbas. A few reasons leave readers with a sense of wonder about these verses. I want to highlight three things about this text that leave readers with a sense of wonder. And the first is the timing. Jesus has taught on open roadsides and grassy hills. He's taught in residences and he's taught in the temple. He's taught in synagogues. He's taught from boats. But here he speaks from his cross. The timing of these words and what leaves readers with a sense of moving in their soul and wonder and emotion is that Jesus says what he says here from the cross, where every breath and every word has to be so measured. You're not going to have an unlimited amount of words and breath on a cross. And it's going to get more and more difficult to breathe. And what Jesus deliberately utters here, he utters for the ages to know. We think secondly, not just of the timing, but of the division between the two criminals. One of the criminals rails against Jesus. The other criminal repents. He's the penitent thief. Both men were there with Jesus. They both were guilty. Both had the chance to speak to Jesus. They both don't respond the same way. Then thirdly, consider the wonder of the brevity of the criminal's Christian life. Here is a man committing himself to Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus. And yet death is imminent. This man will not be baptized. He will not take the Lord's Supper. He will not join a Bible study. He will not connect to his local church. He won't share the gospel with his family members and friends. The brevity of the criminal's Christian life is a staggering thing in this story. In verse 39, let's look at the words of the first criminal. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, at Jesus. Railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
Now, railing against Jesus, that verb is very deliberate. Luke doesn't say one of the criminals said to Jesus, aren't you the Christ? Railing against Jesus is language of mockery and scorn. We have to let that verb interpret what comes out of the criminal's mouth. This is not a question of faith and hope. The difference between the two criminals is meant to be pressed upon us in the scene. This is why in Mark chapter 15, 32, it says those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now, Mark 15 doesn't tell you all of the story. Luke gives you more details about what happens with one of those criminals as the hours unfold. But be assured when it says here in verse 39 that one of the criminals railed at him. This is the reviling and mockery. The criminal is picking up perhaps on the sign that's above Jesus' head. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The full sign is told by John's gospel in John 19, 19. Luke tells us in Luke 23, it said, King of the Jews. And the King of the Jews was the Christ. That's the title for that Old Testament office. The office of the Deliverer or the Messiah. So one of the criminals using some of his breath and some of his words, which on a cross needed to be measured and paced, uses some of his breath and some of those words to rail against Jesus. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. This is a taunt. He's taunting him. And he sounds like some of the people we've already seen in Luke 22 and 23. One example would be those who had Jesus in the Jewish custody in Luke 22. In verse 65, it says, many other things were said against him, blaspheming him. So speaking words of revilement, mockery, blasphemy against Jesus. Oh, that had already happened during the Jewish stages of trial. And then what about the Roman stages of trial? Well, in Luke 23, 35, the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldier said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. The first criminal just joins in the fun that the rest of them are having. He picks up on their verbal cues, he takes their lines, and he begins to, to make those his own script from his heart and just mocks and rails against Jesus with sarcasm and scorn. Mark 15, 32 is right. Those who were crucified with Jesus reviled him. Now, if these people were with Barabbas and the Jews wanted Barabbas' release in Luke chapter 23, 18... And with Barabbas' name, Bar-Abbas, son of the father, it is reasonable that Barabbas was a Jew and that the Jews had sympathy for Barabbas, even though he might have had some kind of zealous insurrectionist instincts against the empire. Barabbas and the criminals on the cross were not pro-Roman individuals. If they were pro-Roman, they wouldn't have ended up crucified. And if they didn't share the interests of the Romans, they likely would have shared the interests of the Jews, which would explain why the second criminal starts talking about a kingdom. Why he would be thinking about the Christ. Why certain titles and language might penetrate the heart of someone who knows the Old Testament scriptures and long for the Messiah to deliver, but had been caught up in an earthly kingdom. 
All of this paving the way likely for these criminals to have opened for them a way unto paradise through Christ who is himself the way, truth, and life. If these are likely those sharing the sympathies of the Jews, perhaps because they are Jews, then this first criminal is mocking the fact that Jesus, in his estimation, is not the Christ. And he's joining in what the soldiers and earlier Jewish leaders have said. This is a false Messiah. After all, why would you have hope in a Messiah that's killed by the Romans? You would imagine that he's automatically disqualified from an everlasting throne if they kill him. And they crucify him in public shame. So with this disrespect and taunt, this first criminal offers up these thoughts. He says, save yourself and us. I don't think he's actually imagining Jesus would deliver himself. But he's saying, if you're the Christ, this delivering figure, then make sure on your way out after delivering you, you don't leave us up here. Take us too, deliver us all. You're the Christ, right? This is similar to the unbelief and mockery earlier in Nazareth. And when I say earlier, I mean Luke 4 earlier. That's that's way earlier. We're in Luke 23. So at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and in a place of Nazareth where he grew up, at his hometown synagogue, they said uh, words that were oppositional to Jesus in their unbelief, though he had read from the scroll of Isaiah and said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he summarizes their unbelief that you would say to me, physician, heal yourself. Heal yourself, save yourself. And this language earlier of the soldiers, if you're the Christ, the chosen one, all of this seems motivated by demonic mockery. Reminded of Satan in the wilderness where he says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, temptation and taunting and disrespect and scorn. Well, this, this language of the first criminal is interrupted by the second criminal. I don't know if they'd exchanged much information or back and forth while on the cross, but in verse 40, the other criminal rebukes the first. This is quite a striking thing, and J.C. Ryle indicates that we notice here as a reader the first notable step in the repentance of the thief. Because he was put off and frustrated at the scorn and mockery from the other criminal to Jesus. So this second thief, this criminal rebukes the first and says with a question, Do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So if we're keeping up with the conversations here. Verse 39 was the first criminal to Jesus. And then verses 40 and 41 is the other criminal to the first one. He's rebuked. There is some rebuking that goes on in the gospel. Now, when you see someone doing the rebuking in the gospel, you're expecting that some kind of force is being opposed. Some demon is being rebuked or some disease is being vanquished and overcome by Christ. But when something is being rebuked, it's a, rem- it's a mark of corruption or sin and curse being overcome. And this man rebukes the first criminal as if his words are motivated and animated by nothing less with such mockery and disrespect against Christ of the evil one himself with a serpentine disrespect and demeaning language. And this other criminal won't lay there and take it. <clears throat> 
He will not hang on the cross and remain silent. And he says, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. This second criminal speaks of fearing God. This reminds us of the Old Testament responsibility and the New Testament responsibility to not live as a fool. And one of these criminals shows themselves a fool. The other shows themselves as growing in wisdom. The first who reviled Christ and mocked him with the lines of the Jewish leaders and the soldiers who disbelieved showed himself to be an utter fool and one who does not fear God. This second criminal, something else is going on, isn't it? He says, do you not fear God? Because for the second criminal, he is quite concerned about that. Fearing God and speaking and acting in line with what fearing God would be expressed with. And he draws attention to the fact that they're all on the cross here. You're under the same sentence of condemnation and you're going to spend your last breaths And your measured words offering revilement and disrespect and demeaning talk, utter foolishness. Don't you fear God? And we, he says in verse 41, indeed justly are condemned with this sentence. That's the implication here. In verse 40, the same sentence of condemnation is in verse 41. What the thief says, we indeed justly are receiving it. We are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This means that together they have participated in things that would warrant, according to the Roman law, crucifixion. He says, if we're looking at the scene, my brother on the other side here, if we're looking at the scene, we're up here not because we're innocent. We're up here because we are guilty. We're receiving the due reward of our deeds. So he draws attention to his sinful actions. He says, you have sinned and I have sinned and we have done what is wrong. We are up here receiving the due reward of our deeds. We are indeed receiving this sentence justly in verse 41. But when he says we, he doesn't mean all three of them. When he says we, he only means the one on the right and the left of the man in the middle. He says in verse 41, this man has done nothing wrong. While the first criminal joins the wicked Jewish leaders and the mocking Roman soldiers, this other criminal talks like Pilate and Herod Antipas. I find no guilt in this man. So these criminals are imitating or taking onto their own lips earlier language. And Pilate had earlier said in Luke 23, I find no guilt in this man. I'll punish him and release him for you. I'll give you something. You're so uproared and in such a fury over him. I'll punish him even though Pilate doesn't believe he's guilty of the accusations raised against him. This second thief's Insight into his situation is profound. He recognizes that he and his compatriot, they are guilty. They are justly condemned. But the man in the middle has done nothing wrong. We should wonder how he could conclude that. 
There are a number of clues in the text that could point the way. I'll suggest several of them. He has heard Jesus say in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is not a normal response of a guilty person being crucified by the Roman Empire. You would expect words of vitriol and vengeance of revenge and revilement returned right back evil for evil. I bet no one in a scene of crucifixion had ever heard language that they heard from Jesus on that day before. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This second criminal has watched Jesus speak and behave not like a typical person being crucified. According to the other Gospels, Jesus has actually been quoting the Psalms. Here's a man on a cross with the Bible on his lips, drawing from Psalms of David in the Old Testament. He's been praying and quoting scripture. He's praying for God to forgive those involved in his crucifixion. If this thief is seeing these things, if that's what's standing out to him, if this thief has a Jewish background, like Barabbas likely does, then it even is more impressing upon his heart and mind as someone who would be familiar with at least some of these scriptures and here Jesus is putting them on his own lips as if he's the suffering king in the Old Testament. Would the thief think about texts like Psalm 22 where later it speaks about with David's words, my hand and my feet are pierced? Would his mind travel to Isaiah 52 and 53 about a suffering figure bearing iniquities who is marred beyond, the, beyond a, a laudable and alluring semblance? This thief has heard rulers say, though in mockery, he saved others, let him save himself. But I wonder if while setting aside the mockery of the second line, let him save himself, if that first stood out to him all the more. He saved others. What an interesting claim to set up a mockery. He saved others. And if you read in Luke's gospel, he certainly did. People had their sins forgiven. People who were ostracized and excluded were brought near. People were delivered from demons and disease and death. Jesus had been preaching to liberate the captives with the good news of the kingdom of Christ. And therefore, when others said, hey, he saved others, let him save himself. That second line doesn't fit with the first observation. It shows utter human foolishness and unbelief. Because if he saved others, if he has saved others, why not you? If he has saved others, could he not save me as well? And so if this thief is listening to what other people set up to mock and scorn Jesus with, these perhaps could be the very things the Lord is using by the Spirit, working upon the heart and mind of this one on the cross. Lastly, consider the sign above Jesus' head. King of the Jews. Now the first criminal said in Luke 23... Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. That sign was just a sign for scorn. But if you're the second criminal, you're looking at that sign and you're thinking, could it be? Could it be that this indeed is the king of the Jews? Written in multiple languages by Pilate, not intending to make a worldwide statement, but in multiple languages, a king on a cross being proclaimed. Could it be? Could it be? 
J.C. Ryle says the next steps are the full acknowledgement of the thief's sin and a confession of Christ's innocence in these words. We are the guilty and he is not guilty. This thief has not yet died. This criminal is doing what the earlier parables held out hope for if people would be wise and heed the words of Jesus. Parables of a rich man in Luke 12 who thought only of worldly indulgences, who thought I need to tear down my barns of great size to build only bigger barns for all that I'm having. And yet Jesus says in Luke 12, the soul of the rich man was demanded of him that night. He was called a fool. In Luke 16, a rich man who lived for worldly wealth and did not love God and did not love neighbor showed a heart closed to the hope and covenants and truths and promises of the gospel and word of God. And that man died and went to the place of judgment. These were people who, with the time allotted to them, did not attend to the state of their soul. They didn't attend to their heart before God because they were distracted by all the other things of this world. This second criminal is different from those two in the parables of Luke 12 and Luke 16. Here is a man not yet dead and he's on a cross so he's close and he's attending to the state of his soul before God. Yes, even on a cross. Even on a cross, it's not too late to call out for mercy. The people in the parables of Jesus died without attending to the state of their soul. And friend, there's no more pressing business that you and I have. None. No more pressing appointments or plans. No more pressing interests and passions that rise above the priority of the state of your soul before God. We've seen in verse 39, the first criminal speak to Jesus. We've seen in verses 40 and 41, the second criminal speak to the first. And now in verse 42, this second criminal speaks to Jesus as well. His words are totally different from the verse 39 criminal. This criminal in verse 42 says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He speaks the name Jesus. According to John 19, 19, that's also on the sign. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I'm just going to tell you, friends, in verse 42, that's a confession of faith right there because the sign not only gives the name of Jesus, but his title. And this thief believes his name and his title. That's his name. His name is Jesus. Why would we think about him confessing Jesus as king? Look carefully at what must be implied. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That man in the middle has a kingdom. And you know who has a kingdom? Kings do. Remember me. When you come into your kingdom, there were many who mocked the idea of Jesus being the Christ, not the second criminal. He believes it. He believes it. That mockery and that scorn does not get in him on a way that in him in a way that furthers any hardness or desensitization. 
He is vulnerable on the cross and he is being moved by this scene and he is being compelled to speak words of hope and trust. This is a prayer. He sounds like a psalmist from the Old Testament who's in a position of affliction and suffering and calls out to God to remember his promises. He speaks on the cross to Jesus like psalmists speak to God. Jesus, remember me. This is an exaltation of Jesus in the heart and eyes of the thief. This is a thief who is speaking with the eyes of faith, who is seeing and confessing what is true. And he says, remember me, which is a longing to be in and share in the dominion of the kingdom of which Christ is king. Remember me is a way of saying, I don't want to be excluded. I will go with you. And that's a remarkable prayer given that if they're on trial and on crosses because of insurrectionist activities, they've been motivated by earthly power and status and gain and warfare and kingdoms. And here on the cross, his allegiance changes. Right before the eyes of the soldiers and the others, this criminal is saying, forget about the other things I had been committing to. These other things driving me, the other elements of zeal that led me here. I want to be with you and your kingdom. Remember me. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To speak of Christ as a king of the kingdom is a confession of faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Remember me is his cry. He sounds like the tax collector in Luke 18 who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This second criminal has already identified himself as a sinner by implication saying we've committed these deeds We are being justly condemned and judged for them. So he would agree that he is a sinner. But now he's calling upon Jesus as people call upon God. And this remembrance would be a remembrance of mercy. You see, what this criminal is not saying is, you know, Jesus, I know that they made these accusations against me. And I know the guy over there, he has certainly done them. But I just want you to know, as far as it goes with me, it's all fine. It's just a big misunderstanding. Because like you, Jesus, I'm innocent. He knows he's guilty. His only hope is that God will not count his sins against him, grounded in something beyond himself. This criminal's guilt is real. This criminal's sins are many. And it's as if he's saying like the toll collector in Luke 18, 13, be merciful to me. His only hope is that God would remember him in Christ Jesus in a covenantal fashion. Jesus had already told his disciples at the Last Supper, my blood is the blood of the new covenant given for you. In other words, the only hope for the sins of this criminal is the man in the middle bearing them. That's the only way anything's going to change. That's the only way he will be justly remembered because right now he's justly condemned. And the radical nature of the gospel is that God declares the guilty not condemned. That God justifies the ungodly. 
How does God, who is holy and just and righteous, justify the ungodly? It is based upon the atoning work of the man in the middle. Here is the Passover lamb. Everybody's lining up with their lambs on Passover on that Friday. They're going to the temple and they're looking for their opportunity to have their lamb be slain and the Passover meal to be eaten. This is the day when the lambs are sacrificed. This is why. 1 Corinthians 5 says that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Because in the timing of what's going on, on that afternoon, Jesus on the cross is fulfilling all of those earlier offerings. Everything they pointed to. Every sacrifice that was ever given. Everything ever offered at a tabernacle or later at the temple in Jerusalem. It's the man in the middle on that cross who can say to the thief the following words. Because what he's doing on that cross is dying a substitutionary death. So the last language in our scene today is from Jesus. We haven't heard from him among the criminals yet. The criminal has, number one, has spoken. Criminal number two has spoken. What's his response to this? Jesus has spoken words to the Father. He's been quoting some Psalms. Now direct speech to one of the criminals. Here's what he says. He says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Death is near. Jesus doesn't have a lot of breath left. But he makes sure to say a preface to the promise. The preface to the promise is, truly I say to you. And while every word matters, those words have been words Jesus has spoken throughout his earthly ministry. Truly I say to you, words of weight and significance to insist on the authority and the assurance of whatever's coming next. So when Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, you have no reason to doubt the trustworthiness of Jesus' words. He says, truly I say to you. He's in his right mind. He's fully conscious of everything he's about to say. And with full deliberation, he says to the thief that incredible promise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now paradise is a shorthand word to speak about where the righteous dwell with God. He's talking about that hope of life with God. What we would think of as heaven. The place or the abode where the people of God would die and while absent from the body temporarily would be present with the Lord. This place, paradise, would be where the thief goes from a cross to paradise. Charles Spurgeon preached this passage January 31st, 1886. Spurgeon says, in some respects, I envy the dying thief for this reason. That when the Lord pardoned me and pardoned the most of you who are present, he didn't give us a place in paradise the same day. We're not yet come to the rest, which is promised to us. No, you're waiting here. Some of you have been waiting very long, Spurgeon says. 30 years, many of us. 40 years for others. 50 years with many others. The Lord has blotted out your sins, and yet you're not with him in paradise. He didn't take any one of us from nature to grace, who from nature to grace, to then from grace to glory in a single day. You know, Spurgeon's right in that observation. Here this thief will die, and Jesus says to him, Today, today you will be with me in paradise. There's no purgatory here for this thief. There's no time of further waiting and cleansing in some intermediate abode before he will eventually dwell with God, waiting for his sins to be purged and cleansed. 
J.C. Ryle is right. If the thief needed no purgatory, the whole doctrine of purgatory falls to the ground. He says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Both men on the cross heard all that had happened with Jesus hanging there and speaking, praying. Both men were dying the pain and agony of crucifixion. Both men on either side of Jesus were guilty and needed forgiveness. And yet one mocked and one turned. This impenitent thief became the penitent and believing criminal. Repenting and crying out for remembrance and for mercy and was saved. His sins Forgiven, never had a man on a cross been so clean as the criminal on that day. He would join Jesus in paradise. He's like the prodigal son in Luke 15, 17, who came to his senses and would be welcomed home. Earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus had dined with others at their places. He'd been in the home of tax collectors and in the home of Pharisees. He'd been in the home of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. In fact, he said to Zacchaeus, who was up in a tree, hurry up and come down. I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus had been on a tree looking for Jesus. And Jesus didn't mind telling somebody on a tree that they'd have fellowship with him when he came down. He told Zacchaeus, I'm going home with you. Now Luke 23 gives us a scene. Here's Jesus looking at a man on a tree. And Jesus doesn't say, I'm going home with you. He says, today you're going home with me. 